Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. There are many ways to learn history and connect the past to the present. One way to get a better understanding of America's history is to check out an art exhibition that is currently on display at the Central Library in downtown Minneapolis. It's called Testify, Americana Slavery to Today, and it's there through the end of the month. It's a collection of historical artifacts that tell the story of segregation and racism in America, and the items belong to the family of former Minnesota Supreme Court Justice Alan Page. Last week, Justice Page and Minneapolis Federal Reserve Chair Neil Kashkari held a public conversation about the relationship between race, justice, and the economy. So coming up, you're going to hear a recording of that conversation, including some questions from the audience. But first, because it's Monday, I want to get an update on the latest economic news. What is going on with our money and the nation's economy? NPR's senior economics contributor Chris Farrell is here in the studio with me. Hello again, Chris. Well, Good morning, and that conversation I can't. It was wonderful. I was there in the you audience. You were in the audience. Thank you for coming. And it's a wonderful conversation. All right, we're going to hear more about that. But you've been traveling, doing some reporting, so I haven't had a chance to get caught up with you. Uh, how do you describe what's going on with the economy right now? Yeah, I would say the economy is reasonably healthy and very confusing. <laughs> if you think about everything that's happened to this economy, you know, you uh, the pandemic recession, you got this rapid recovery, you got Russia's invasion of Ukraine, high inflation rates, but then we got this low unemployment and. We have uh, lower wage workers are, you know, seeing some real wage gains. So considering everything that's going on, it's not surprising we keep hearing this forecast about a recession. But the recession is not here. And the there may be there, but it, it's simply a stronger than expected economy considering everything that's happened to it. So multiple things happening at one time. And it seems like some people are optimistic. Others are pessimistic. Uh, <laughs> and it really... It really depends on what happens with inflation in the coming year, right? Right. So some people are optimistic, some people are pessimistic. And there's a wonderful article by Nobel laureate and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman. It kind of lays out where we are with inflation right now. And but he says the truth is that we don't have a very clear picture of what's happening to inflation right now. But then he goes on to say there's a couple things that we do know, which is one that inflation's probably coming down. It's still above what the Fed would like it to be, this two percent target range. Um and that we're not seeing the kind of 1980s, 1970s entrenched inflation where it keeps going higher and higher. So we can calm down on that level. But it's a little bit unclear right now. Is it going to get a little bit worse? Is it going to get a little bit better? And that's the core uncertainty that's in our economy. And what about the impact of the, the series of interest rate hikes from the Fed? Yes. So this has had a big impact, particularly uh, impact on the housing market. That's where we're really seeing it with higher mortgage rates. That's had, had that's had an impact. Um, but it doesn't seem to be slowing down business that much, does it, Angela? I mean, business seems to still be yeah. hiring. They're not laying off that many workers. I mean, there's some sectors like high tech is laying off workers, but they're getting rehired. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, as we talk about, uh, you know, jobs and employment, um, unemployment, we get some new employment numbers uh, for February. Uh, I, I assume like this Friday, right? This Friday. So we get, you get the employment. And so January's number was this huge increase of over half a million jobs. Uh, Bloomberg did a survey of economists and the consensus expectation is still going to increase by 215,000, which if that, if it turns out that that's the number, that's a really, that's a good number again. Um, and it's still healthy increase. And so one thing I just want to say, if it is a good number, everyone should stand up and cheer. 
cheer. Now, we're going to get all these articles that are going to say, oh, no, the Fed is going to have to tighten more because the economy is too strong. But remember, people are getting jobs. More and more people are getting jobs. And at the same time, it's also true that the Fed will probably continue its increasing rate program. What are we seeing um, when it comes to uh, the disparity that we've seen over the last few years in the unemployment rate? So one of the things I really want to bring out, particularly because of the uh, of the conversation that we're going to be listening to uh, with uh, Neil Kashkari and, and Justice Page, is there was a, a look back by the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And the in January, the white unemployment rate was 3.1%. The black unemployment rate, 5.4%. And what this study is, it looked back from 1963 through 2022. And the black unemployment rate despite all the ups and downs in the economy, good economy, bad economy, has been remarkably stable. The black unemployment rate has been twice that of the white unemployment rate over the past 659, 60 years. And so one of the reasons that when the number comes out on February, let's take a look and see, is the black unemployment rate, is that ratio actually narrowing, which would be a sign of some progress. So over 60 years, even with ups and downs, you the still The ratio see- has stayed the same. Yeah. Twice. The black unemployment rate is twice that of the white unemployment rate. And uh, I we just heard in that news update, the Federal Reserve uh, this week, we'll hear from the, the chairman this week. That's right. So Fed Chair Jerome Powell, he goes up twice uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, and then Wednesday, testifies before Congress. And um, I suspect what he's going to do is he's going to repeat his warnings. He's going to say, Angela, the fight against inflation, it will be long. It will be difficult. Does he talk like that? Yes. And he, he will also, uh, he won't see any reason for the Fed to change his policy. And I I imagine he's going to get a lot of questions, which he'll dance and he'll avoid, about will the Fed's next rate hike be 25 basis points, a quarter of a percentage point, or half a percentage point. Uh, and reason why that question is going to be particularly pressing is that the Fed actually meets on March 21 and 22, and it will set monetary policy. And before we were having this, uh, you know, we, when we last had the conversation, the expectation is it would be like a quarter point move. But because of some of the recent inflation numbers that have come out, there's a sense that perhaps it could be a half point move. And you've taught in the past uh, that economists study how people spend their money. They They look at you know, what happens with folks' paychecks. And so what are they seeing there? So in terms of what's happened with people's paychecks, there's two things to emphasize. One, uh, people have really moved away from big ticket items, more expensive things, spending a lot on beauty, cosmetics, <laughs> uh, that that kind of, you know. Okay. So, you, know, you still want to spend, you still want to, you know, go out there and, and go to the store, but you're not spending the kind of money uh, that they were earlier in, in the recovery. The other thing that we've seen is has to do with wages. And with wages, uh, this is a remarkable and different recovery because it's the lower wage workers are getting the wage gains that beat inflation, and it's the higher wage workers who are lagging behind inflation. And this is an unusual shift. So a lot of people are quitting their jobs and finding higher paying jobs. People uh, uh, with lower wages are. So two recent studies. One comes out of the Atlantic Fed, and they looked at people who quit their job. Mm -hmm. And boy, you know what? Sometimes conventional wisdom is right. And the conventional wisdom is if you, you know, you want to get, you want to get a big pay increase, you're going to have to quit your job and get another job. And that turns out to be really true. The other one is this really important paper just recently published, three well-known economists. And what they're arguing is that the wage gains by low-wage employees that we've seen during this, uh, rebound 
are durable. And what they found is that workers with a high school education or less and 40 years and under, uh, they got, uh, you know, inflation, they got Wage gains above the rate of inflation, and their theory is that the reason younger workers tend to move around a little bit more are more willing to shift jobs, and older workers uh, were less willing to move around. But the other thing is that when we lost all those jobs early in the pandemic, it kind of like broke the economy. And then when people started looking for jobs because of the government support, the government payments, people had the money to look for a better job. People had a little the more money, time. a little more time. Mm-hmm. And so what they ended up with is a better job and they're not going to go back to where they were before. All right. Well, thank you, Chris, for getting us uh, up to speed on things. And for the rest of the hour, uh, I want you to stay with me, and I want everyone to listen to this uh, conversation that I I was invited to take part in last week. Thursday evening, uh, retired Minnesota Supreme Court Justice Alan Page and Minneapolis Federal Reserve Chair Neil Kashkari held a public conversation about the relationship between race, justice, and the economy. Uh, Chris, you were there in the audience. I was on stage. I was the moderator. What did you think about, like, you know, people, uh, you know, just came in and a live public event, uh, these two to guys on stage, uh, you know, talking about what they really, honestly, truly think about this connection between race, justice, and the economy. I found it incredibly moving. And it was 5 o'clock on a Wednesday evening, and there was a really good crowd there. And this is Much such, more than 200 people. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's such an important conversation. There's one moment, just very quickly, that, that uh, stuck with me, which mm-hmm. is when Justice Page, uh, he said, you know, um, every person who gets left behind diminishes that individual diminishes our economy, diminishes society. It means also diminishes our, our, our tax base. I mean, he said it much more eloquently than I did. But his kicker was, you know, in terms of addressing this, the importance of addressing this, quote, it's a no-brainer. And that just stuck with me. Well, let's take some time now to listen to the first part of that discussion. Uh, again, part of the Testify exhibition on display at Central Library in downtown Minneapolis. The two speakers, again, Alan Page, Neil Kashkari. I started by asking them about what brought them to this moment in time. Why do they want to talk about this connection between race, justice, and the economy? For me, it begins when I'm born. You know, black and male in the 1940s, growing up in the 1950s, and living in a country that, for large portions, have state-sponsored segregation and viewed as the other. Here we are some 70-plus years later, and the legacy of what was going on then is still around today. And we have a long way to go to end the disparities in opportunity, the disparities in treatment that uh, African Americans have experienced. And I happen to be fortunate enough to be in a position to do what I can. Neil, as you think about your past achievements in life, what brings you to, to this moment? Well, um, similarly, in, in some sense, with what Alan said, I was born in Ohio. We were both born in Ohio. And my parents were immigrants from India. And I was fortunate that my parents put a big focus on education when I was growing up. And because they did, I've had every opportunity of this country open to me. It's really a remarkable country if you're actually able to access all of the opportunity. And I've been blessed in being able to access that. But along the way, I realized not everybody's so blessed. And um, 
So I asked myself, what can I do in the various roles that I have had to try to give other people the same opportunities that I've had in my life? And the more history I read, and I read a lot of it, the better understanding I have of where we are today and how we got to where we are today and where we need to go. And so for me, I mean, what Alan said uh, echoes with me um, in many ways. It really is just about giving everybody else the same chances that I've had in life and that I know that I'm going to be able to provide for my children uh, Mm -hmm. just because we are very fortunate. Justice Page, for many people who have walked through the Testify exhibition um, here at the Central Library, uh, they may still be processing the things that they that they have taken in, these historical artifacts. Uh, truly, a, it's a journey through our narrative um, as a country and the story that many of us have been telling ourselves for you know our entire lives, that we are a democracy here in America, uh, that we have equal rights. But how true do you think that really is? And, and, and where do you think maybe it's gone wrong? Well, we are a country that from our inception has been grounded in racism. That is a painful thing to hear. It's a painful thing to know, but it is a fact. And indeed, one of the, the important pieces of the Testify exhibit is that the items and artifacts that are on exhibit represent facts. Not somebody's opinion, but real facts. Um, You know, our Constitution, three-fifths of a person, those who had been imported as slaves. Think about that. Three-fifths of a person. And so, that's what we're grounded in. But... um, We also talk about forming a more perfect union. And over the years, we have formed a more perfect union. We have uh, ended slavery with the 13th Amendment, allowed women to vote with the 19th Amendment. We have, um, for the most part, eliminated the Jim Crow era, the colored only and whites only signs, the state-sponsored segregation, but we've still got a way to go. And um, And Minnesota in particular, some of the worst racial disparities in the nation. We have um, some of the worst, whether we're talking about education, whether we're talking about our criminal justice system, we have some of the worst in the nation. And we have to work to change that. And we all, everybody here, has the power to, in their own way, bring about those changes. So, Neil, why and how does the Federal Reserve research issues of economic inequality? Um, How does all of this connect with the mission of the Federal Reserve? Well, it connects in a lot of different ways. Um, The Federal Reserve was created by the United States Congress, and they've assigned us our goals, what we're trying to achieve through our policy actions and our research. One of our goals is maximum employment. As many Americans as possible, gainfully employed and contributing to our economy. Well, it turns out there are enormous barriers for people to participating in the labor market to participating in the economy. And I'll give you an example. When I moved to Minnesota in 2016 and I started my job, 
I don't remember exactly what the unemployment rate was nationally. It was probably around 4 4.5%. 4.5%. And most economists looked at that and said, we're at full employment. Everybody who wants to work has a job. And most businesses that you would talk to would say, we can't find workers. We're out of workers. And then I would travel around, and I'd go into lower-income communities and communities of color, including North Minneapolis, and I'd meet with families who say, we need work. We're stuck in part-time jobs, and we want full-time work. And I saw that there was a disconnect between what the national statistics were saying, what businesses were saying, and what families on the ground were actually saying. And so what we realized was we need to do a much, much better job understanding everybody who's out there and everybody who wants to participate and figuring out what are the barriers that are keeping them from finding those jobs or from finding those better jobs. So for me, understanding these disparities, shining a light on them, potentially coming up with solutions is actually fundamental to our job of achieving maximum employment, which is one of our jobs. And so how does everyone benefit if everyone is fully employed? Well, I mean, the, it's the, the ways are innumerable. It's, you know, the economy is bigger. We're able to produce more things. We're able to, right? One, you know, we have very high inflation right now. Newsflash, okay? <laughs> Breaking news. Uh-huh. We have very high inflation right now. Part of the reason we have very high inflation right now is that the demand in our economy for goods and services is exceeding our economy's ability to supply goods and services. That's in part because we're missing workers from the pandemic, a bunch of complicated factors. But the more people we have contributing to our economy, the more we're able to provide for one another. And by the way, the fewer people then we have requiring assistance, requiring services. I mean, Alan has talked at length when we spent time together talking about how if somebody doesn't get the education on the front end, they're more likely to fall into crime. All right? And that by itself is a problem and a huge ripple effects in society. Could I, could I just jump in, you know, particularly in the context of education, but I think it probably follows through with housing and health and all the other areas of, of injustice. Every person who gets left behind is a diminished employee, a diminished consumer, and a diminished taxpayer. And that has a huge impact on our economy. And then when you look at the other side of the coin where um, if you're one of those people that gets left behind, you become more likely to become a burden on our society. It's kind of a no-brainer that we need to fix this. So as we think about fixing it um, and and researching this, um, Neil, you launched the Opportunity and Inclusive Growth Institute in 2017, which is um, a research arm of the Minneapolis Fed that is devoted to looking at economic inequality. So let's talk about why that is a priority and and just what you're discovering. Well, I'll give you an example. We had... um we do research on a lot of topics, and it, it touches everything. It touches health care, just as Alan said. It touches housing. You know, affordable housing is a challenge we have all around our region, as another example. We hosted a series of conferences with the other Federal Reserve banks examining racism in different aspects of the economy. And I'll just give you an example of something I learned. So we looked at racism in financial services, mm-hmm. which we know exists. It exists in a lot of different ways, some of which are very subtle. So I'll give you an example. When I grew up in Ohio, I grew up accompanying my mom and dad to the bank. 
I'd go to the bank with them. We'd stand in line for the teller. They'd cash a check. They'd get some cash out. I kind of understood it. And you'd get a lollipop, maybe? Sometimes, Sometimes you get a lollipop. Sometimes candy for the kids? But think know. of it this way. If you've never been to a bank before, and you walk into a bank, boy, it's totally intimidating. There's no signs anywhere. There's no menu of what products are. There's no menu of what the services are. The assumption is you know it. You know to line up. You know what to ask for. It never even occurred to me. Now, if you contrast that to a payday lender, which charges exorbitant fees, if you go in, it looks like McDonald's. They have a sign up there. Here are all the products. Here's what they cost. It's, self, it's, it's self-explanatory. So one of those two systems is geared to help people who already are in the system. The other is geared to help everybody else. So that, I mean, is that, is that overt racism? No. But is that designed to help the majority? Yes. So that's just a little example, and there's lots of examples like that, some of which are overt, some of which are really subtle, but they actually are meaningful barriers for people participating in the economy. So that's some of what you all are studying, trying yes. to get an understanding Correct. of what is going on. So, Justice Page, um, let's talk about the history of racial discrimination that um, is built into our economy and what we see today as a result, connecting the past and the, uh, and the present. And an example that comes up a lot um, is the Rondo neighborhood in St. Paul, um, an area where hundreds of black-owned businesses and homes uh, were demolished to make way for the construction of Interstate 94 um, in the late 50s and 1960s. There's clearly been a huge loss of generational wealth because of that. And I don't know that people connect the dots well, sometimes. It, it's not just Rondo and St. Paul. It's Tulsa. It's Chicago, it's Detroit, it's other areas of Minneapolis. And one of the keys to economic success is being able to pass on your wealth to the people who come behind you, to your family who comes behind you. Well, when you don't have the ability for reasons... Um, because we run a freeway through your neighborhood that um, results in the demise of your local business community, there's no generational wealth to pass on. Mm-hmm. And so, again, the impact in, in owning a home. Neil, what can you, you say about that and how that plays into what we see now with, with economic inequality? Well, it, it's exactly what Alan said, which is, it's about transferring. You know, what is wealth? It's you accumulate income over your life, and you're able to hopefully pass some of it on to your children. If you actually go back to our comments about history that you, you, we've all made since we've been up here, the more history I read, the more examples I find of government policies that were literally targeted to whites only. Going back to original homesteading, which the, introduct- the person who introduced us mentioned, uh, Basically, they wanted to settle the West, and they said, if you go West, we'll give you 100 or 150 or 200 acres of land, and you just occupy the land and work on it for five years, and after five years, it's yours for free. Uh, That was basically whites only. If you fast forward in time to after World War II, where obviously it wasn't just white soldiers, there were black soldiers in the military as well, returning soldiers 
they had uh, housing programs to support returning soldiers so they could buy a house. Mm -hmm. Literally whites only. So throughout history, there have been a number of examples like this where effectively wealth was given to the majority population. And then we say today, well, wait a second. Why are there gaps? You know, work hard and catch up. Uh, that's a tough thing to do when they're supposed to catch up when tremendous wealth was given uh, to, the, uh, to another group. But the impact today, so you see it, you know, and who has the means to send their kids to college, as an example, you know, um, is that part of what, you know, you were thinking about, you and, and your late wife, Diane, when you started your Page Education Foundation? Well, our goal there was to give uh, our children of color the same opportunities that both of us had, that um, through education, if there is a tool that will allow you to gain wealth, it is education. My parents made that clear to me, and we've worked to try to provide that opportunity for others. Now back to the conversation about race, justice, and the economy, featuring retired Minnesota Supreme Court Justice Alan Page and Minneapolis Federal Reserve Chair Neil Kashkari. They held a public discussion last Thursday at the Central Library in downtown Minneapolis. We talked about racial disparities, but there are people who question whether institutional racism exists. So I asked Justice Page to explain how structural racism shows up in our criminal justice and economic systems, and here's what he had to say. I mentioned earlier Jones versus Meyer, the the real estate case that involved the 13th Amendment allowed Congress to uh, prohibit discrimination in private property transactions. Justice Douglas, in a concurring opinion, uh, used the phrase referring to the what was the practice of preventing African Americans from purchasing real estate as the white community did. He referenced the phrase slavery unwilling to die. And that's what it is. And he gave other examples because the examples are in not only in housing, but in voting, in jury service, in our criminal justice system. Indeed, in our criminal justice system, the only the only place where African Americans are overrepresented, underrepresented every place else, overrepresented in our criminal justice system. Looking back when you were serving as a Supreme um, Court Justice here in Minnesota, what is it that, you know, why did you have passion for that work? Or what was satisfying about having that position? For me, it's about fairness. Um, Brown versus the Board of Education was decided when I was eight years old. And... Brown decided or sounded the death knell for state-sponsored segregation. That gave me hope, hope that a young African-American kid in Canton, Ohio, could have the opportunities that everybody else had. Um, And along the way, given 
my upbringing, my parents, and uh, quite frankly, uh, the partnership I had with Diane. It was about doing what we could to, um, as Kevin Warren would say, send the elevator back down. When you've ridden the elevator to success, don't just get off and go about your business. Send it back down. Mm-hmm. Neil, as we um, look at the, the life cycle of the, the average American, um, how does uh, structural racism and, and, and maybe institutional bias in the economy seem to affect people um, at key milestones in their lives? And, and what can we do maybe to fix that? Well, I mean, it's, it seems like it's at every step of life. Right, and the more I see it, the more I can't unsee it, and the more easy it is, the easier it is for me to see it, um, to see it in other places. I mean, I just think about. Well, I just give an example. I've got a bunch of examples in my head. I don't have time for all of them. Uh, we we've done studies at the Minneapolis Fed recently on mortgage disparities and mortgage denial rates. Speaking about buying a house, and it's been known for a long time that there are big disparities in terms of mortgage approvals for white borrowers versus black borrowers versus Hispanic borrowers. And usually when you look at the data, the banks will say, yeah, I know, but that data doesn't reflect differences in income and differences in FICO scores. Right? Because that obviously matters to someone's creditworthiness. Well, we at the Federal Reserve actually have access to that data. So we said, let's go look at the data for FICO scores and income. And it doesn't explain it. So then you go back to the bank CEOs, and we say, now look at the data, and they say, and they're, they're flummoxed, because they say, look at this, and they say, wait a second, our business is making loans. If we are turning away borrowers that are good, otherwise good borrowers, then we're leaving money on the table. We want to get to the bottom of this, too. And so as, as you think about um, racist practices, how does it harm the economy in Minnesota and also, how do you think diversity benefits the economy in Minnesota, Neil? Well, it, it harms the economy in Minnesota because the number one issue that I've heard about from businesses of all sizes since I've been here is they can't find the workers they need. Where are the workers going to come from? And if we're leaving behind Minnesotans who want to work, and the barriers to them working are maybe they don't have the skills necessary for a given job, because they didn't have the education opportunities that many of us have had. Maybe there are transportation barriers. Maybe there are child care barriers. Maybe there are house, any number of different barriers. But that's available. That's economic potential that is being left on the sideline that we are not tapping. And those individuals and their families suffer, but the economy as a whole suffers. And then just speaking to the point about diversity, one of the things I'm proud of with my colleagues at the Minneapolis Fed is we've really diversified our leadership team uh, we've been able to recruit wonderful talent, uh, which I believe very strongly. We've improved the talent of our team, and we've improved the diversity, and that we're able to challenge each other with a different range of ideas, and I think that makes us better at our jobs. Mm. Can I just chime in on that question about diversity? I learned, or I, I, I sort of knew it, but it became starkly clear for me the, the importance of diversity when I joined the court. You have seven individuals. And the reason you have seven individuals, 
so that you get seven different perspectives, mm-hmm. seven diverse perspectives. And in that process, you hear things that you hadn't thought about, or you hear things that you'd thought about, but you hear it in a different way, and it makes what you do better. And it also makes the collective work better. And so this notion that um, somehow diversity is a bad thing or not something that we should be concerned about, I think that's just a prescription for um, mediocrity at best. My uh, final question, kind of personal, um, conversations about race and racism are often uncomfortable, often unpopular. Um, and so I'm just curious for each of you, when you put yourself out there and, and make it clear that, uh, that this, this is real and that we need to talk about it and we need to take action, um, you know, does it worry you that, it, that you, it will make people uncomfortable or that you will have people who uh, view you as unpopular because you're choosing to bring up the past again? Um, I always acknowledge that it's uncomfortable because it can be. But the fact that it's uncomfortable doesn't mean that we can ignore it because uh, the effects, whether they're um, intended effects or they just sort of happen, whether the um, discrimination is intentional or uh, just uh, built into the system, they are real. And until we solve those, until we, each one of us, ends and comes to grips with our own personal biases as it relates to race, and still, until we start looking at people as individuals and judging them based on what they do and what they say as opposed to some preconceived stereotype, we will be having this conversation on and on and on again into the future. And Neil, um, as a, a as the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Chair, you're probably used to unpopular opinions <laughs> or people having unfavorable uh, opinions of you. You follow but, me on Twitter? But what? I do follow you on Twitter. But uh, but what motivates you to still put yourself out there and 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 pursue what you're passionate about? I mean, why am I here? if not to try to make a positive impact? What's the point of having a role that's potentially influential if you're not going to try to influence for the better? You know, that's, It just seems like it's a wasted opportunity. We're all here on this planet for some short period of time, and I want to look back on my time, whatever I was doing, as I made the most of it to actually try to do something useful. Uh, and you know, other, there'll be a range of opinions about whether what I did was useful or not, uh, but I'm going to try. Uh, if I'm not going to try uh, for fear of somebody might be uncomfortable, then I might as well, I might as well just go home. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like an uncomfortable conversation, too. But it, it, it can be unnerving. Right? You know, I, I had the good fortune to have, a, have had a partner who, back in 1971, young white woman, future bright as can be in in her particular chosen field, 
And the first thing she said to me when she met me was, would you be willing to come? I volunteer at the Blaisdell Boys and Girls Club. Would you be willing to come and visit the young kids that I volunteer with? Young African-American males. She had a commitment, even though it was sort of totally foreign to her, not something that one would have expected of her, and I suspect not something that she was necessarily always comfortable with. But she uh, did it. But she did it's it. important to her. And if you look at the people that she touched over the years and the changes that she has wrought, um, everybody here and everybody listening has the power to do the same thing in their own way. And the spirit of Diane Page is definitely here with us tonight. I want to make sure that you guys have an opportunity to ask um, Justice Page and and Neil some questions. Uh, And so we have a gentleman here in the front. Hello. Hello, this is Greg from Minneapolis. And a lot of questions. However, I'll just start with one here for uh, Justice Page about the real estate coins. Now, I'm thinking this probably predates the redlining that has happened. And doesn't that just mean that instead of being overt, the redlining system basically went underground so that everything was, it was in place, but just not seen as much. I I suspect that it was in conjunction with. I don't think they were trying to hide anything. It was just one more marketing mechanism, if you will. And remind everyone what redlining uh, was. It was a system that really prohibited uh, people of color from buying property in certain parts of the cities. Yes, by by law, by uh, covenant, by as some would suggest, any means necessary. And there were banks that would say, we're not going to lend into these neighborhoods because we just have designated this neighborhood is not credit worthy. Uh, And so that just compounded the problem. And what is the impact of redlining today in 2023? What do we see as a result of that? Well, we talked about generational wealth Mm -hmm. and the inability to pass it on when there was no investment on the front end it's hard to have returns on the back end. Mm-hmm. Anybody else want to ask a question? Again, if you'll say your first name and what town or city you're, you're from. Suzanne from Burnsville. Um, I know that the two of you had worked together to propose an amendment to the Minnesota State Constitution on reducing educational disparities, but Mr. Kashkari, they kind of put a damper on that or on with you, your participation. How are you still pursuing that in any way, shape, or form, or is there a workaround to get at it? Well, at the moment, um, we're taking a hiatus. The politics of it have gotten more complicated after this last general election, and so for the moment, we're um, on hold. But that doesn't mean that the problem is going away. And the point of that is, is that 
you two were looking at a new and different way to address these these gaps in education that we see. We were we were proposing to make public education a quality publication public education a constitutional right. Mm-hmm. That would be the carrot, the stick would be if that right was not vindicated. Those whose rights had been denied would have the stick of being able to have that right enforced. And Neil, what can you say about the latest development on what you can say about your interest in that? Well, you know, Minneapolis Fed has done research on education disparities literally for decades. Real, real focus early on on early childhood education and the economic analysis and returns to that more recently on K through 12. We're going to continue to do active research on what these education disparities are, what the gaps are, <clears throat> what we can learn from around the country and around the world. By the way, there are some states that are doing a much better job in Minnesota at closing these gaps. So, you know, I mean, I'm, the, I'm very comfortable saying things that people don't like, so, you know, <laughs> forgive me. Um, one of Minnesota's biggest challenges is we spend an awful lot of time patting ourselves on the back, telling ourselves how great Minnesota is. And if you are constantly telling yourself how great you are, you are never going to be great. And, you know, when other states that we would look down on are doing a much better job educating their low-income kids and their kids of color, that ought to be a wake-up call for us. A headline once was Mississippi. There's some southern Florida. I mean, a lot of the southern states are doing a much better job. Anybody else want to raise their hands? Yes, sir. Could you say your name? So my name is Peter Hutchinson. I used to be the superintendent of schools here in Minneapolis. I'm here, uh, Justice, to, to ask you to not sit on the bench. Don't take a hiatus. Because right now we have a unique opportunity. Frederick Douglass said that education unfits a person to be a slave and that one who can read will always be free. In Minnesota today, half to three-quarters of our kids cannot read proficiently. That's everywhere. That's all across Minnesota. But for kids of color, it's more like 75%. 75 to 80% of all the people in jail cannot read. Now, you either believe that these young kids can't learn to read, or you face up to the reality that we failed to teach them. Right now, in the legislature, there is a bill to change that. It's called the READ Act. We know how to teach kids how to read. We're just not doing it. This is a chance, Justice Page, to do what you do so passionately, which is to knock down the barricades, to be the purple people eater. (laughs) and, And Neil, it's a chance for you to research why is it that this has gone on for 30 years? Why is it? that we failed to be effective uh, educators for our kids. Anyways, I've got a lot of passion about this for obvious reasons. I know you do, too. We do not need... Uh, I, I'm sorry about what happened to the Constitutional Amendment, but we don't need to stop. We don't need to take a break. Um, and just to speak to that, I, I'm, I'm wondering... Um, Neil, not that you're old, but, you know, Alan, you're in your mid-70s, Right. 70 years young, yes. Seven, yes. But don't you feel like at some point, you know, we've, we've really got to activate more people, and even, like, younger people to be more vocal to, to push this? 
right? Well, if I had my way, I'd have kids marching in the streets. Because education is their issue. It affects their lives and their futures and their hopes and dreams. So I would have them, I'd be sort of the Pied Piper. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, another question from the audience. Yeah. Hello. My name is Christian Hubble from Minneapolis. And this is really exactly what I'm asking is what words would you give to younger generations who have not, who lack the lived experience of living through the, the, prog- the progress that we've made, the steps that we've made forward that don't have that context and are feeling hopeless and are giving in to apathy because they have learned of history, but it feels like we're still here. So you have generations that are kind of checking out because they're feeling overwhelmed by, by how far we still have to go. What words would you give to encourage us? Well, I spend a lot of time in schools and classrooms talking with kids about that very thing. And what we talk about is... What are their hopes and dreams for the future? How do you plan to achieve those? Education is the one tool that will help you. I mean, there are other tools, but education is a significant one. And you have the power to choose what that future will be. You can decide whether you want somebody else to control it, or you get to make your own choices. I mean, those are the conversations that I have with kids at Justice Page Elementary and at Justice Page Middle School um, and in countless schools across the state, indeed across the country. Um, and I've been having that conversation with them for the last at least 50 years. And the power of those young voices when we have talk shows and we have the opportunity um, to either interview children or do recorded interviews or you hear the voices of the children and the teenagers, it is so powerful. And so what can we do to create an, an opportunity to, to amplify their voices? Young children get it. <laughs> they understand both that they're being left behind, but that also given the opportunity, given the educational opportunities, they could do great things. They understand. And you're right, looking at our uh, juvenile justice system, for many of the young kids that are involved in that system, they're there because of a lack of hope. And as Martin Luther King Jr. uh, suggested, those who have hope want to build. Those who don't have hope want to tear down. And we are reaping the fruits of all those young people today who, are, who have lost hope or are losing hope. We have the ability to change that. You've been listening to a recording of a discussion with retired Minnesota Supreme Court Justice Alan Page and Neil Kashkari, the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Chairman. That was an event last week at the Central Library in downtown Minneapolis, where there is an exhibition called Testify, Americana Slavery Slavery to Today. It's there through the end of the month. Chris, uh, what do you think about the second part of that conversation? Well, it's something that you said. 
history matters. And that's what I take away from that conversation. I'm glad we had an opportunity to be there oh, in person. Great. And the questions from the audience as well. All right. Our time is up for today. Thank you for joining us. And be sure to tune in tomorrow morning at 9 as we continue more of our conversations. Thanks. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.